Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I am Mark Kleber, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies, uh, and will be the moderator of this panel. I think this is a great follow through from the earlier panel, uh, because while we often talk about moral hazard and risk taking in terms of financial institutions, uh, there's also moral hazard and risk taking on the part of consumers as well. And so I think one of the topics among many we're going to talk about uh, is the impact that if you save people from their bad decisions, they are likely to make more bad decisions. Uh, if you take the perspective that uh, financial, consumer, financial, consumer financial protection exists uh, to save consumers from predation, oddly enough, you might have consumers take less effort to save themselves from predation. So the question of whether actual predation is lower or higher in the absence of consumer protection uh, is an empirical question. Uh, not a philosophical or even theoretical one. Uh, so I hope that we're going to cover a variety of these issues. We've got a very uh, distinguished panel. Our first speaker will be Todd Zawicki. Uh, Todd teaches at George Mason Law School. Uh, and I let me uh, say Todd is one of the most prolific writers in consumer finance. I suspect on the right over here, he probably drafted a Law Review article and set it <laughs> off as he was parking his car. It's a full-time occupation just to keep up with his writings. Uh, and if you think I'm kidding on that, Todd just came out with a new book on consumer finance, about 700 pages almost. I look forward to reading it. We'll be doing a book forum on it sometime in September, which will probably take me that long to get through it. Um, our second speaker will be Raj Date. Um, you may know Raj as he was recently, uh, well, my sense of his current affiliation is at Finway Summer, which is a consulting firm here in Washington. Uh, he most recently worked at the CFPB as the deputy director and helped establish and set up the CFPB, uh, has before that a long history of finance, and, and I certainly consider one of the smartest guys out there in consumer finance issues, uh, and is going to give us uh, a little more practical implication uh, of some of these things are going to work. Uh, and lastly, we're going to have Kevin Villani. Uh, Kevin, uh, who's written a number of papers for Cato, which there are copies of outside, uh, is currently an executive scholar in residence. You're going to have to ask him what that really means. Um, apparently, I don't think it has any teaching responsibilities uh, at the University of San Diego. He uh, previously, in a variety of incarnations, has been chief economist at Freddie Mac, chief economist at HUD, uh, and has certainly written a number of things on consumer finance, particularly mortgage finance, over the years. Uh, so we are very lucky to have a very distinguished panel, uh, and I'm going to turn it over to Todd to get us started. Thanks, Mark. Um, I'm going to talk about the, um, the, the structure of the CFPB and how it's operated so far. Um, and, um, and I want to start off by, by the, at the outset by basically saying I, I agreed in principle and agree in principle with the idea of something like a single agency for dealing with consumer financial protection. Uh, having worked at the Federal Trade Commission, um, I sort of saw how ungainly and how unworkable the, the, the multilateral system was for, for coming up with a coherent system for consumer financial protection. So I like the, that, that idea. Secondly, I think the idea of a better integration of federal and state um, consumer protection law was much needed uh, as markets have changed and that sort of thing. The unfortunate thing is that the CFPB is not that. Uh, the unfortunate thing, I think, is that the CFPB was a, a great missed opportunity um, in terms of bringing about reforms that were necessary and instead is a terrible step uh, in the wrong direction uh, and will end up hurting consumers in the long run. Uh, I call it the revenge of Richard Nixon uh, because the CFPB is structured as if they learn nothing at all 
about uh, the last three or four decades of study of how to design regulatory agencies or regulatory policy. And instead, it's kind of like a um, kind of like a um, Jurassic Park type of institution, sort of frozen in amber uh, in the early 1970s and thought out uh, as if they missed everything that we did during the 80s and 90s. And we, and we learned during that period why we don't design agencies like the CFPB, which is a completely unaccountable um, uh, agency insulated from all sort of uh, proper feedback and uh, in, in that sort of thing. And in particular, what we're seeing already is over time, we, we came to understand what the pathologies of bureaucracies are when left to their own devices. And unfortunately, the CFPB is starting to manifest those already. Things like tunnel vision focus on its mission to the exclusion of other missions, an agency imperialism of reaching off into areas in which it has no particular expertise or uh, uh, infringing on the jurisdiction of other agencies. And unfortunately, it has turned out to be extraordinarily political um, from its very inception. Uh, um, it is a, uh, been a, you know, not to mention the fact that its founder used it as uh, to, to launch herself uh, not only into the U.S. Senate, but apparently as a plausible presidential candidate. And it's had this highly political tinge um, ever since then. Um, now, we basically, over time, we've seen that there are two ways in which we design agencies. We have executive agencies in which you have accountability to the president, uh, and we have independent uh, uh, commissions, uh, like the Federal Trade Commission and the SEC. And the logic with an independent commission is that a bipart usually bipartisan, multi-member commission basically creates internal checks and balances that substitute for the external accountability that you have for an executive. This is at least the, uh, uh, the, the theory. And through the deliberative process and the like, and the ability of dissenting commissioners and minority commissioners to uh, blow the whistle, to write dissents, to do those sorts of things, you create an internal sense of accountability. Uh, and this is the model of the Federal Trade Commission. Now, the irony about the CFPB is, is that the Federal Trade Commission has been around for a century. Uh, and it does exactly what the CFPB does, which is basically consumer protection. Uh, and it's developed a model that works quite well. And the CFPB has basically come along and said the FTC has been doing it wrong for a century without any explanation as to why these internal checks and balances actually work. Now, CFPB, as we know, is neither. CFPB is not an executive agency. It's got a, uh, in, uh, it's the, the director is appointable a five-year term, removable only for cause. It's got a guaranteed extreme budget um, its budget is twice the size of the Federal Trade Commission's, uh, uh, for instance, even though all it does is consumer financial protection. No OIRA control, limited uh, uh, control oversight from a safety and soundness uh, perspective, um, and, uh, um, and statutory-based Chevron deference for anything that it does. So it's really got none of the typical uh, checks and balances that we see for any other independent agency. Um, and the argument seems to be that CFPB is different because it's apolitical. It engages in evidence-based policymaking. And so as a result, it's got this internal disciplinary process uh, that uh, um, uh, relieves it of the need for proper checks and balances that we typically see in the rest of the, uh, in the, in the government. But in fact, as I've argued, it might be more accurate, as we'll see today, to describe it as policy-based evidence-making uh, that they engage in rather than evidence-based policymaking. Uh, and in particular, as I said, we've got a sense of how uh, when bureaucrats sort of released into the wild without adult supervision, uh, when they're kind of turned loose on the economy, certain things happen. 
uh, as we've learned uh, painfully from experience, and we're seeing this sort of thing happening. So let's start with the QM rule, um, which is, I think, one of the uh, most striking ones, uh, which is the QM rule, um, among other things, um, limits um, so-called negative amortization mortgages uh, and exotic mortgages and that sort of thing. And one of the things they cite when they do that is a Chicago Fed study, and this relates to Mark's point about moral hazard, which is it turns out the myth or the, the argument that these you know, negative amortization mortgages and all these exotic mortgages were uh, uh, peddled to uh, you know, dim-witted inner-city people is completely a myth. I mean, banks are stupid. I, mean, we can, I think we can all stipulate that banks are incredibly stupid, but they weren't that stupid. Uh, and what the Chicago Fed study found was those who took negative amortization mortgages, for instance, were the most high-income, most sophisticated investors, uh, 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 consumers. And why were foreclosure rates so high on those? Because when their housing prices fell, these are exactly the kind of sophisticated people who recognize when their house is underwater and they've got negative equity in their house that it's a good investment to walk away. And that's exactly what the Chicago Fed found, was that these were sold to the most sophisticated people, that they have high uh, um, uh, foreclosure rates. Why? Because, uh, because they are the ones who are most sophisticated to know a bad investment when they see it. Right. The uh, last line, complex mortgage contracts attract sophisticated borrowers who are more strategic in their default decisions. The CFPB relies on this in uh, limiting, as part of the QM rule, these sorts of mortgages. But when you read it, it goes through some sort of magical incantation and turns into a question of affordability rather than strategic behavior. Right? So what we see here is um, the performance of many of these loans is also very poor and worse than expected with the onset of the downturn. Why? Because interest only and negative amortizing loans were often sold on the basis of the consumer's ability to afford the initial payments and while regard to the consumer's ability to afford subsequent payments once the rate was recast, right? That's, and they cite the Chicago Fed study. That is not what the Chicago Fed study says. The Chicago Fed study, as we saw, said these borrowers are more sophisticated, more likely to be strategic. These were not borrowers who were unable to afford their mortgages, right? Those are completely different conclusions and lead to different policy outcomes. Uh, so for instance, another thing we see is that although they pull in teaser rates, the empirical evidence is quite clear. Teaser rates were not a significant contributor to the foreclosure crisis. Most of these loans defaulted, but they defaulted before the teaser rates even reset. The CFPB admits that, and still at the same time, they basically ban that. Now, why does that matter? Because when you look at QM and you understand that not just with these sorts of mortgages, but mortgages generally, the problem was a deterioration of down payment requirements. The problem was the fact that homes did not have sufficient equity in them so that when they fell into negative equity territory, people had a strong incentive to walk away. You'd think that if you wanted to address a future foreclosure problem, what would you do? Require higher down payments and more equity. Astonishingly, the QM rule that the CFPB issued does not say anything at all about uh, um, higher down payments or anything like that with respect to qualified mortgages. Instead, it's all this focus on affordability, which not only is incorrect, but also will do, would have done nothing to uh, deal with the problem that we had during the last financial crisis, which was a general uh, a deterioration of uh, down payments, uh, cash out refinancing, and that sort of thing. Similarly, what we see is a special protection of Dodd-Frank for state so-called non-recourse or anti-deficiency laws. 
which are laws that basically allow people to walk away from their homes uh, without having to pay any deficiency that they owe on their mortgage. What we see is that foreclosure rates are two to three times higher in states that have anti-deficiency laws. Um, again, not only does Dodd-Frank do nothing about that, Dodd-Frank gives special protection before consumers potentially waive their right to claim an anti-deficiency law. Now, that may make sense in some general consumer protection rationale. It's the exact opposite if what the problem we were concerned about was, uh, was foreclosures. Why? Because when we understand that we have to deal with both the incentives that we had and the incentives that we are creating and not pretend like it was an affordability issue, the, the type of policies we would address for an affordability issue are completely opposite of the type of policies we would want to think about if we were dealing with an incentives issue. Um, let me turn to a second area, um, and Mark's going to remind me when I'm running out of time. And I want to talk about the second thing, which is this agency imperialism and this astonishing overreach of the CFPB with respect to the, the auto dealers. Now, there can be nothing more clear than Section 1029A of Dodd-Frank. The Bureau may not exercise any rulemaking, supervisory enforcement, or any other authority, including any authority to order assessments over a motor vehicle dealer that is predominantly engaged in the sale of servicing of motor vehicles, the leasing and servicing of motor vehicles, or both. I don't know how one could write a more clear statute. Now, let's be clear. This was, as far as I could tell, a pure special interest carve-out, right? Auto dealers are a very powerful uh, lobby. And they they won on this one, right? Uh, it's clear that they didn't want to that they didn't want to be on the CFPB. It is clear that they are not under the CFPB. Nevertheless, the CFPB is regulating auto dealers pursuant to uh, um, a, a, a enforcement of uh, a fair lending laws. But not but they are not going after the auto dealers director, directly. What are they doing? They're going after the banks that provide money to the auto dealers, and they're making the banks responsible for any uh, uh, disparate impact caused by the dealers to whom they are collecting, uh, get, uh, issuing money, right? Indirect auto lending. Now, here's the amazing thing. The banks do not collect demographic information such as race from the auto dealers. And so they've got to come up with a whole process now whereby the banks have to come up with a whole proxy system for determining the decisions that the auto dealers are making in their offices to people. Not only withstanding Section 1029, which I just said, but basically turning uh, banks into an arm of the federal government to enforce these laws over an entity over which the CFPB clearly has no jurisdiction, applying disparate impact, and doing it in a manner that uh, um, uh, they have n not necessarily any idea what they're doing. For instance, they have... Uh, um, uh, th this doesn't recognize at all the way in which auto dealers and captive lenders, for instance, are intertwined, right? You may have, you may be Ford Auto Credit, you may have too many pickups in Dallas. I know that seems implausible. Uh, you would probably have too few pickups in Dallas, but let's say you've got too many pickups in uh, Boston. Maybe that's more uh, plausible, right? And you may decide we're going to uh, issue 1.9% financing in order to move these pickups off the lot, right? Now, that's the way in which this business works, right? The car sales and the lending are intertwined. There's no recognition with respect to the CFPB in trying to do this that they have any awareness of how these sorts of indirect auto lending uh, processes work and that sort of thing. They have no awareness that basically what they're doing is remaking the entire way, not that car loans are made, but that cars are sold. <laughs> 
uh, and no awareness of possible unintended consequences that might flow from that, right? And the worst part is they're doing it through a bulletin, not through any sort of rulemaking or that sort of thing. They're essentially remaking the entire way cars are sold in America without any sort of due process, without any sort of uh, um, standard rulemaking or the like. It's just astonishing. Uh, the last thing I'll close on is the data mining operations, which I think show a lot about uh, how this entity is structured. You may be familiar with these data mining operations. They want to collect um, uh, uh, information on 85% of the credit card accounts in America, which is a 911 accounts, now a million accounts, 90% of the mortgages. Um, and, when, and they acknowledge that there's some risk to consumers from collecting all this information. Not a large risk, but the risk is not zero. Now, why is this uh, extraordinary? When you think about it, why do they, why do they need to collect uh, information on 85% of accounts? Wouldn't 60% be enough? 50%? 40%? Well, according to my colleague Thomas Stratman, they are collecting 70,000% more uh, 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 accounts information, then they would need to have statistically significant uh, uh, information for policy. Why are they collecting so much information then? The obvious thing is, is they don't really care about the cost to consumers and the possible data breach to consumers in light of the fact that they're just interested in getting the data for, uh, uh, for themselves. That basically the bureaucrats have push their own interests uh, to the fore, and essentially this ostensible agency designed to, uh, to protect consumers is instead basically dismissing the concerns about the possible privacy problems to consumers and the like. This is the kind of unaccountable bureaucratic uh, behavior that you would expect in this sort of, uh, this sort of entity. So, um, so I'll close by saying, why does agency design matter? It's precisely for these reasons. They are acting exactly the way in which we would have expected a bunch of bureaucrats released into the wild without adult supervision to act. Tunnel vision, agency imperialism, uh, putting their own interest ahead of the interest uh, of potential other interests such as consumer privacy and the like. Thanks. Well, you can always count on Todd to come out uh, with a bang. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Y'all for being here, and thank you, Cato and Mark, for the invitation. Uh, it is like the nicest day ever in Washington <laughs> outside in July, and so I'm slightly astonished that there are as many people in the room as, as, as there are, so, so thank you. Um, uh, I keep hearing about the CFPB that's all powerful, and uh, it, it sounds like an agency I, I used to work in, and, and yet <laughs> I, I bear, it bears no resemblance in some ways. Um, uh, when I talk, uh, first let me acknowledge, uh, uh, the first time I met Mark was uh, back in the spring of 2009. I, uh, after a career in, you know, kind of in the business, in the credit card business, the auto finance business, in the bank M&A business, and then I was on Wall Street, um, I was the senior investment banker at Deutsche covering banks during the crisis. So if, uh, which is an experience that still feels quite surreal uh, in most uh, respects. Uh, I found that in the spring of 09 that the only things that I kind of knew about, uh, which were like consumer credit, bank balance sheets, capital markets, and there was like no fourth thing. Those are the three things. And those three things happened to be important from a broader public policy point of view at that moment in time. And so I thought, you know what? I have a law degree. I'm going to get involved. Here I go, getting involved. And I had no idea how to do that. So I started a think tank because I didn't know how preposterous that is. But I talked to Mark about it, and he was, he was too polite to sort of signal like that's that is, that is a faintly ridiculous idea. Uh, later that same day, I got a phone call from someone who was slightly less polite. Um, she had the, the, it was the woman who had the office next to mine at uh, McKinsey, 
in Los Angeles like 15 years prior, and she said, wow, you're starting a think tank. That is going to fail. But in the brief moment before it fails, you should call my mother, because my mother is the chair of the Congressional Oversight Panel on the TARP. She's called Elizabeth Warren. Here's her cell phone. So that's how I got connected to Elizabeth, randomly through a McKinsey colleague. Uh, uh, And I had done a bunch of work in small business credit, so I tried to help their staff on small business lending issues. And as things sort of coalesced between the White House and now Senator Warren, I became probably a logical person to come down to D.C. to help to put together the, this new agency. My enthusiasm for joining the CFPB and indeed for the notion, the main tenets of financial reform in general, were kind of grounded in what to me uh, were a, a couple of observations about how things went so haywire during the course of the bubble and then, and then ultimately the crisis. Uh, and for me, the main, like the central problem in U.S. consumer finance was that for a period of several years during the bubble, it was very difficult to get paid to make good decisions. Now, making good decisions on credit risk, on rate risk, on counterparty risk of all kinds, it's hard. And if you get paid just as much uh, or more to be inattentive to risk and to make dumb decisions, well, then you shouldn't expect people to make a bunch of good decisions. And, and nor, nowhere, I'm just going to contrast two things in particular the residential mortgage business on the one hand, and the credit card business on the other. Okay, so the credit card business, which recall is, you know, in some ways like this horrific thing, like it's an unsecured credit. And by the way, every time someone goes bad, they go bad for the full amount. No one, no one decides they're not gonna pay and then doesn't use the line. So it's like this horrific dynamic, yet unemployment doubles, and every single credit card master trust in the country is just fine. They, they, you know, the bondholders get paid. With one exception, that was, I think, kind of done on purpose by the issuer. So uh, contrast that to the mortgage business, which in most respects you would think is just substantially less volatile. And you had master trust structures, uh, you had trust structures blowing up all over the place. And obviously the CDO structures built on top of them were a complete calamity. Um, And the main reasons to me in that is that mortgage, it was impossible to get paid to make good decisions. On the one hand, you either were competing head to head with the sovereign effectively in the GSEs, who have, oh, I don't know, a superior cost of equity, superior cost of debt, way more leverage, way more scale. Like, that can't be done. So you can't get paid to make good decisions in agency-eligible paper. Uh, or you're competing against people who are making obviously ridiculous decisions, but were not holding any residual risk themselves. Right? So you could literally, you could be a tiny, you could be uh, in the Alt-A mortgage business, which by 2006 was like this clown show in terms of the credit decisions are getting made. And by the way, it, it, like if you look at early payment defaults, like in Alt-A, it wasn't just that people had really high LTVs. The problem is like they had no notion of paying this thing back to begin with. Uh, you shouldn't make those credit decisions. But what would happen? You could turn around, you could sell those loans to Bear, Lehman at 105, 106 on the dollar. And if that's what you're competing against, if your idea is to make a more sensible loan that you're going to hold residual risk on forever, you can't compete and you shouldn't even try. And, and frankly, that's kind of what happened. Uh, and uh, you know, I think, uh, the, to me, the great promise of financial reform and of the CFPB was to try to help the market discipline itself by making it easier to get paid for smart decisions and be prevented from doing things that are obviously ridiculous and passing them off to, to others. Um, it also kind of drives, uh, you know, uh, some of this is grounded in my own point of view on the sector today and kind of the problems faced in the U.S. financial sector. I, I am, once again, quite active in the sector. Uh, we effectively, at Fenway Summer, are like a venture investment and incubator firm. We own a, uh, 
We own a minority stake in a non-agency mortgage bank based on San Francisco. We own 51% of a credit card venture. Uh, I would be surprised and disappointed if we don't seed a new venture in student lending. Uh, and the, the common thread in all those things are being able to find places where you can create products and deliver them through channels that make people's lives better and allow you to get paid. Like all those things have to be true. And in our opinion, it's true in non-agency mortgage. It can be true in, in subprime credit card. And it can be true in pieces of the, the private student lending business. Um, uh, and I'm excited about all of those things. And, and we're trying to build these businesses in ways that allow us to sidestep some of the problems that a lot of the incumbent players, unfortunately, really do have today. One is just operational, right? Like, um, uh, like most people who have been inside a bank, like. Um, you know, I've been in my share of bank M&A and post-merger environments, and the reality is that most big banks in the country uh, are the aggregation of lots and lots and lots of little banks in the country. And when you are, when the economics are right, you kind of make the accounting go, uh, go round, and you can add shareholder value in a demonstrable way, the tendency is to do the next deal. And I think we as an industry, and I own this as much as anybody, we're not quite as disciplined about tying together systems of record that would allow you to be more nimble going forward. And as a result, a lot of large institutions, and large institutions matter, right? The big balance sheets and lots of customers are not nearly as nimble as they really could be or should be because they are dealing with gigantic patchworks of legacy systems um, up and down the business system. When you start from scratch, especially when you're building businesses in 2014 and not 1954, that is a big advantage, gigantic advantage. Um, Second is uh, one more about philosophy and, and governance at the top. Um, I think Wells uh, uh, did. I think like Wells always sort of embraced this. And I know at Capital One, we tried to embrace this. But in my opinion, it, it is a little bit lacking in the sector today. And this is the notion of paradoxical conservatism. Like you should find aggressive and aspirational things to like great ways to add value and develop new markets and new products and get to customers in new and intriguing ways. And all of that takes a certain amount of ambition and aspiration. But you cannot do great things unless you are paradoxically conservative at the same time. You have to be disciplined throughout processes. And I think, you know, unfortunately, uh, uh, the sector in general has collapsed into sort of a, a knee-jerk uh, uh, conservatism without the paradoxical part. Uh, and as a result, you know, for, for a sector that now is basically in terms of returns is climbing back to basically making its cost of equity, I, I think the pace of kind of innovation and changing of sort of the basic kind of uh, uh, value proposition to customers it has been more limited, I suppose, than I would have preferred. Um, and then finally, the businesses that we're building and even the businesses that we invest in, we have a venture capital arm, uh, like I would like to think are embracing the principles of what can make this, this sector, consumer finance, uh, really vibrant and value-added sector. And that's, that's mostly a, kind of the common basic ordinary principles that I think most American enterprise embraces. And by contrast, that means not allowing oneself to be sort of get into this ossified, hyper-prescriptive mode where you, know, you have senior people who should be spending more time with customers, spending way too much of their time uh, you know, kind of in compliance checklists and the like. That's a, that is a disaster. Uh, and we, as an industry, have kind of done this to ourselves. If I think back to the comment letters, right, during the rulemaking process at the CFPB, every single industry comment letter says, well, what we need is we need bright lines and clear standards, and you know, otherwise we can't do anything, because the uncertainty, oh, the uncertainty. OK, well, you know what? If that, if that is the approach, you end up with a hyper-technical, crazily layered uh, set of rules that you, know, you, you 
like realistically, a general manager of a meaningfully sized line of business inside a gigantic bank does not have the time or inclination to do. It doesn't make sense. Um, unfortunately, we, we, we as Americans have uh, developed a fascination with rules and, and much less around sort of sensible principles. Uh, the nice thing about starting from scratch, in, as we are in many of these businesses, is you can kind of press the reset button on some of that as well. Um, uh, I don't know how I'm doing on time here. Yeah, a couple more minutes, you're good. Uh, so uh, if it's interesting, and I know it is to me, um, when, I, uh, when I talk a little bit about the things in the sector that uh, are the most exciting to me, and where it is that on the margin, I personally am trying to spend more time, and we, with our meager resources, are trying to, trying to spend some more money. Um, one is the ability to use the combination of processing speeds that, that enable machine learning with gigantically broader access to data to make better decisions. Better decisions on credit in particular, but you could extend it to others as well. I mean, look, the, the state of the art, realistically, in terms of credit decisioning uh, in the US for credit intensive assets has not changed meaningfully since the time that I left the credit card business the first time in 2007. Right? It's basically like log regression models based on bureau data, kind of chain analysis, and that's great. The, the problem is that if you have a set of customers whom, for whom it is systematically difficult to create a, a thick enough traditional bureau file, you can't make good decisions on people. And if you can't make good decisions on people, you either choose not to lend at all to them, which is a mistake because they have like actual credit needs, or you price wrong. You systematically priced too much to less risky people in those populations. You price too little uh, 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 to more risky people. And that, that is not how efficient markets are supposed to work. That's one area where I'm excited. The second area that I'm excited is that uh, uh, at one point I thought that an entire generate, in order for the private label MBS market to come back, at one point uh, yeah, during the crisis, I thought an entire generation of bond buyers was going to have to die and be replaced by people with no memory of what had just happened. Um, I don't think that that's true. And it's a good thing, too, because like a sensibly structured securitization vehicle for private mortgage credit can work. I mean, you have to have risk retention. You have to have some common standards for, for you know, investors to understand what in the world the surfacer is going to do. Uh, but that is a structure that should work. And I think we're beginning to see some melting of, uh, of the uh, quite predictable kind of, um, uh, uh, kind of ice that it, that it encased the private label business for some time. Uh, and then finally, uh, like there is, I think, uh, uh, a, a certain, like things are, especially amongst uh, the finance company universe and a number of venture-backed firms, there is a lot of enthusiasm to try new things uh, because there is nothing that gets better through some master plan that you devise and then just magically sort of bestow upon the marketplace, you got to try stuff. And most new things don't work, and then you don't cry about it, you, you fix it and move on. And I think that sensibility is slowly starting to get into some, sec some kind of corners of the sector, and I'm very enthusiastic about it. I will stop there. And, uh, I'm so glad. I think Kevin has uh, come up on that. Ah, here we go. Uh, well, I realize it's been a very long morning. I'm not subject to the normal breaks that we get in the public sector. And I'm the only barrier between uh, you and lunch. So I will try to avoid all repetition of previous speakers over the last day and after the maximum extent possible. And also uh, mostly avoid the discussion of the financial crisis in the housing market. I'll be talking about that at great length tomorrow at a free lunch, ironically sponsored by the Cato Institute. Um, <laughs> I've tried to limit the topic today of the title of the session by adding the word political to uh, protection and moral hazard, but it turns out 
that doesn't limit the topic very much at all. Um, I left Washington 30 years ago, and every time I come back, I'm reminded what a magical city this is. Magical in the sense that it's Disneyland East. It's a fantasy world where myths come to grow. I worked in probably uh, two dozen of the formerly centrally planned economies after the Soviet Union fell, and uh, they were in total denial about why their system failed and, and why failure was intrinsic to them. But they really felt that they were going to be bailed out because USAID was sending over Fannie Mae representatives and representatives of all of our GSEs, and they said, there is really a new system here called hybrid um, market capitalism. And of course, there was nothing new about this. This was more like British crony capitalism of 300 years ago when we had the East India Tea Company. In a competitive market system, all of the decisions are made between the interaction between the borrowers and the savers and the intermediaries. And what's left for politicians and regulators is to administer the rule of law and to promote competition. Not very much. In a system of crony capitalism, all of those decisions are made by political bargaining among politicians. And what's left for the private sector is more the custodial duties of, in, in our case, origination and servicing. And we get blamed for failures. And you, if you've been here for a day and a half, you know which of these two systems that we have. Um, so what is consumer finance? I had to think fundamentally. And it really only consists of saving, borrowing, and insurance decisions. But we can't think of those decisions independently of one another, and we can't think of the consumer investment decisions independent of those. But most importantly, the decisions that consumers make about work effort and decisions to be in the workforce are integrally related to all of their consumer finance decisions. And I would, I would only highlight um, that the life cycle savings is probably the most important of these that I'm listing there, because they occur over such a long period of time, and it's the power of compound interest. Um, the savings institutions that served consumers in consumer finance were historically all mutual. I opened my first savings account at the Provident in Boston, not in 1816, sometime after that. Um, <laughs> I worked for a life insurance company called Mass Mutual Life Insurance Company in 1970. Now, I can tell you, we had customers there that had been with us since the 1800s. They engaged in uh, nominal fixed-rate annuity contracts where they saved with us for 40 or 45 years under the original terms of that contract, and we paid them back for 25, 30 years, depending on how long they lived. It could be a 75-year life cycle. And we had no regulator. And we had no complaints. This really was, to paraphrase uh, the movie, uh, a wonderful life of financial institutions. So what happened? Um, well, how did mutual institutions manage this risk? Fairly simply, they mitigated the incentive conflicts between all of the participants, mostly by setting capital requirements for borrowers and for the institutions and the intermediaries and for savers. And then they priced things on an actuarial basis so that all of those risks were well, well managed and balanced. Now, just to address a question that you brought up, in the 1970s, uh, one of my colleagues at HUD, a finance professor, used the terminology that um, default on a home mortgage really wasn't an actuarial risk, it was a put option. And he pushed this for 40 years, and I always teased him that, well, that was only true of finance professors. So it's not at all surprising that finance professors were the most likely to default um, because it really <laughs> wasn't an uninsurable risk. 
And that's the way that's, that's worked out. So how do political incentives change the system as a whole? Well, I, I can summarize it in basically two ways. We have protections of savers and depositors, and we have protections of lenders, and the, they both have mostly the same effect. That is, they lead to uh, excess leverage, and they lead, when you have excess leverage, they lead to malinvestment. That is, they're much less careful about the productivity of those investments that, um, because it's not their money, it's somebody else's money. And so we're going to have a much lower return on those investments. Social insurance um, reduces the incentives for work and, hate and savings. These are the fundamental moral hazards, and they're not disputed. They're just a matter of, of um, the degree to which we think that they occur. occur. Um, on, the way out, okay. on the way out here, I was reading The Economist, and there was a story about a child psychologist study that goes back for uh, 30 or 40 years. And the study was simply this. They offered a child a choice between one marshmallow now or two marshmallows in 15 minutes. And the children that took the one marshmallow now were much more highly likely to grow up and be criminals. <laughs> now, of course, if they grabbed the marshmallow and ate it and then demanded two more marshmallows immediately, they were much more likely to grow up to be politicians. <laughs> Virtually every crisis that we've had has related to the moral hazard in, in, in morally, the moral hazard in consumer finance. The SNL industry failure, which I'll talk about tomorrow at great length and a little bit here today, um, but also the subprime lending debacle were mostly about the saver borrower and the lender moral hazards. Although in this second crisis, because of the role of down payments, social insurance paid a, played a big role in savings, and then that had a big impact on that crisis as well. I've heard a lot about the talk about systemic risk and all that. Everything we know about systemic risk is that it's caused by politicians and regulators. They're not the solution to it. And it's caused by them because they protect individual risks. And this research goes back to, to Minsky. The, the over-leverage that builds up and the malinvestment is what leads to uh, systemic financial crises and crashes. So the question is, how did the U.S. go from a system that was a market-based system to a system that was crony capitalist? And I'm just citing four reasons. The first is really that there was a, a concerns in banking over populist concerns over who would get the credit that date to the founding of the country. And I won't say too much about that today, but it has to do with where deposit insurance and all this came from. The second is uh, political bureauc and bureaucratic mission creep. You start with a limited mission, you go to a much bigger one. And the third is the Budget Act, because um, doing things off budget in ways that delivered subsidies is political heroin to politicians. Um, and then the fourth is that we started with a, with a safety net um, due to the economic consequences of the Great Depression. And of course, this was happening all over the globe. The, the, that's not the problem. The problem is what happens after that. And as other speakers have said, we are more of a crony capitalist system than most of the other developed uh, nations. So um, the the populist concern over banking gave rise to get a w around the banking system because the banking system couldn't, couldn't branch. And that's where we ended up with deposit insurance and regulation. We ended up with FHA, which originally was limited to only new housing so that it could stimulate housing starts in the midst of a bust after the Fed had funded the boom during the 1920s. Uh, Fannie Mae was to, there to try to create a, make a good idea out of a bad one by creating a broker-dealer for FHA, um, but nobody really wanted to trade. Um, and we have all of these other agencies. 
Um, they were all sponsored, but not sponsored by the government, but they were never backed by the government. They weren't backed by the Treasury. So what happened in all this? And I should point out that the home ownership rate in the United States grew from something like 45% after the war to its current level today of about 65%, before the GSAs had any market share at all, they were zero, and by about 1970. It was done by the private sector. But in the savings and loan industry, the political bargaining started where once you introduce deposit insurance, you introduce regulation, and the regulation universally across all countries morphs into financial repression. What do we mean by that? Well, one set of bargaining, the savings and loans, they wanted cheap money. So we put deposit rate ceilings on. Um, they also wanted now accounts so that they could have demand deposit-like accounts. Well, that all worked. Then the housing lobby said, well, we like fixed rate mortgages that people can refinance if rates go down and assume if rates go up. So they, so they made it a regulation that cha federally chartered institutions could only invest in fixed rate mortgages and, and nothing else. They could never let that ratio drop below 80%. And then in the 1969, we had guns and butter, which meant we were going to have a lot of deficits and eventually lead to inflation. And when we got the inflation, the Gray Panthers came along. Those are the old people and say, we don't like zero interest rates returns on our deposits. We want money market funds. Fine. So they get money market funds. Either the money leaves the institution or they're liquidated. This was a, a political bargaining system that was guaranteed to fail, and it did. Um, now, Fannie Mae was a zombie in, in 1980. It was $10 billion underwater. Uh, you can't kill a government zombie, right? Because they can continue with no capital or negative capital to issue debt at the government rate in unlimited amounts because the market accepts their debt with the taxpayers behind it. And so they morphed into um, controlling the whole market. The, the third... Um, moral hazard that I talked about is the social uh, pay-as-you-go safety net, the Social Security, that morphed into an unfunded health and retirement system. Probably one of the greatest myths is that Ronald Reagan got together with Chip O'Neill over a few drinks, and they had this huge commission on uh, Social Security, and they sat down and turned that unfunded uh, system into a, a funded government retirement system, and they set up trust funds and all the rest. Well, that's all pure myth. I hate to tell you folks, the trust fund is a pure accounting figment. They never saved a dime. They never invested a dime. And it's even been cash, um, uh, cash drain on the overall treasury since about 2010. This is a big deal. People talk about the unfunded liabilities that we have there. They're about $100 trillion. In present value terms, they're about $60 trillion. That's about a million and a half dollars uh, of, of past savings that never occurred per household. That's what it would take for that life cycle hypothesis to fund the future benefits that, that people like me, the retirement age, receiving Social Security and Medicare now, are getting. That's about 20% national income today that we're not getting because we didn't, we didn't fund that capital. Um, so uh, Willie Sutton was not the smartest of, of bank robbers, okay, because he got arrested a lot, and they always beat him up in prison. But at least he knew to ask the fundamental question, where's the money? And, you know, when I was at Freddie Mac 35 years ago, of course you had to ask that question because you had to go to where the money was. Uh, in 1970, when I was at Mass Mutual, the secondary mortgage market consisted of uh, station wagons in the parking lot. I could always see the station wagon pull up with Texas plates. They had files in the, in the back of the wagon, and we had the money, and they had the mortgages. So we funded participations of their mortgages. No regulation, and it all worked. 
from 1816, when we had that first Provident Savings, almost all consumer funding took place with household deposits. I could show you a lot of data. Um, from, from 65 to 2000, we had retirement savings playing some role in consumer borrowing. After that, as Chairman Bernanke says, with the global surplus, we mostly borrowed it from abroad. That is, poor Chinese and poor Indians were funding our consumer savings, and mostly it's been printed money ever since then. So the question we need to ask, all this discussion about consumer finance and who's going to get it and everybody's entitled to a mortgage is, where's the money? Or where's the beef was the commercial of uh, some years ago. Here's a, just a, in a picture term. Um, the savings rate has been plummeting down to about zero in, in 2007, and the borrowing rate is, has been rising. And the demographics of the country were that this, this graph should have been exactly the opposite, right? As baby boomers like me during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that's when we should have had our biggest savings, and instead we had the smallest savings, again, because of the moral hazard of the government providing for those things in the future. So um, people now say, well, what are we going to do? And we think of, well, the bottom half of the income distribution uh, has trouble saving because they're already living off of transfer payments. So I did this particular cal calculation for the top half of the income distribution. And if you take into account their implicit taxes that the employers pay and all the rest, they're already paying 60%, not to fund the future liabilities of me and Social Security, to fund the current ones. And about half of that goes to transfer payments. And by the way, somebody mentioned this morning that there's 15% goes to the cost of regulation. That's not in this statistic either. So it doesn't seem likely that you're going to be able to squeeze the top half of the income distribution all that much in the future. Um, yesterday, we heard the term uh, uh, prudential... Uh, um, macroprudential regulation, macroprudential management. That's what I call a double oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms, right? If you look at the Chinese policy, for instance, they've tried to have a high growth model by encouraging, doing everything they can to encourage consumer saving, and then they try to put it all through productive business investment to grow their economy. Now, the problem with an autocracy is the government gets a little too involved with the, the decisions on what to invest in. So right now, they got 40% idle capacity, and that tells me something about how, how productive the, the other 60% um, of that capital really is. But think of our policy. We are still, on the short-term basis, we've been promoting consumer savings under the guise of macro policy, just like we've been promoting, I mean, consumer spending. And we've been so we've been promoting consumer spending in the short run and in the long run. We have a social safety net. We have the ZERP policy, which discourages saving zero interest rate policy. I'll get there. OK. Um, and we have uh, the Fed creating bubbles, $19 trillion now in an asset bubble. Um, but let me just explain. The, this is the fantasy world. The, the central bankers over there do, uh, do not have fairies that create economic wealth. It just doesn't happen that way. They can create nominal wealth. They can't create real wealth. And we've had a policy of malinvestment in the housing sector, overinvestment in housing, which is fault, overinvestment in cars, the cash for clunker problems, and overinvestment in education. No matter what education we turned in the, in the future, we don't need quite as many polished science graduates, and those student loans are going to default. And of course, what's the solution there? Well, we'll get to that. Um, the fiscal situation. We have the CBO, which was in this morning's newspapers, as being uh, highly skeptical, but everybody thinks we can grow out of the problem. You need 2% real growth per capita to do that. 
Um, we've had zero per growth per capita the last six years. And to grow, you need real productive business investment, much better than the Chinese. So it's got to come from someplace. Well, I just said households, you can't squeeze them more. They're already paying for the past. Businesses in the United States are paying the highest corporate tax rate among any of the industrial economies. So the notion you're going to tax businesses more and they're still going to invest more to grow isn't going to happen. The international capital surpluses is gone. So when I ask you where the money is, it's a serious question. The IMF has come up with a solution in the 2014 thing. They said, well, countries in a position like ours can avoid default by simply converting their 30-day bills into 30-year into bonds at the current rate and not calling that a default. Or, and this is their recommendation, they can see, seize all the private pension assets to pay for the government's liability. Well, this is a pretty desperate approach, but I don't think it's going to get you to 2% real growth to grow out of this problem. So my liberal friends say, you know, well, what you really want is uh, a return to the economic verities, which I think is true. I, I accept that criticism. There are no fairies that are going to create wealth. It takes work and it takes savings, and the savings has to be productively invested. And that only happens with a market system of finance that, um, that allocates those, that, that gives you the right incentives to, to save and borrow and allocates those savings. Uh, the, the magnitude of that structural investment is fairly huge. Um, one of the most optimistic books is America 3.0 uh, in terms of we can grow our way out of this problem, but it suggests that we cut our um, liabilities, that is, we recognize the entitlement problem, and we cut them by 50%. Well, I haven't heard politicians talking about um, doing that sort of thing. So it's going to require a, a magnitude of a, a decline in consumption. And the real problem is that the, the consumption you want to decrease is mostly indexed to inflation. You, you've got those indexing clauses in um, everything from state and local government retirement funds to the entitlements. So yes, we face a default of some sort. Uh, I understand that they don't want to hear this message. And, you know, this is the problem. It, really, I'm equating progressivism with, with crony capitalism, and this is why it's uh, so strongly resisted. It doesn't really um, give politicians the, the power that they want to have in the future in a, in a uh, system like we have. So I, I just, I'll go through a few sides of my last minute. Um, to misquote George Santana, uh, if you deny the past, you're more likely to repeat it. And the process we've been going through in the last six years, I think, has only made uh, that fundamental problem much worse. Um, the three markets that are most uh, politically distorted today are home ownership, education, and automobiles. In this discussion over the QM and the QRM, there was an editorial written by a, an affordable housing advocate um, that said, Home ownership is not only a basic right, home ownership with no down payment is not only a basic right, <laughs> but home ownership for recently arrived immigrants with no down payment is a basic right. Well, there's a pretty big disconnect between that and the money that we have. Um, I'll skip all these things because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about those uh, tomorrow and end with um, my last, no, oh. My last slide, uh, Britain was arguably a crony capitalist system for 300 years because they had a huge empire where they could generate economic rents so they could pay economic rents to, to those people in Britain. They had another 700 million generating rents. And when they lost their empire, they turned socialist. And Margaret Thatcher is well known for the phrase, the problem with socialism is that you, know, you eventually run out of other people's money. So we're not there yet. We're still crony capitalists. The problem with crony capitalist democracies 
is that when you expand that democratic base, the political elite eventually includes more rent seekers than rent generators. And, and that's where we are today. Um, and I don't blame Thomas Jefferson. He did want an inclusive democracy, but he didn't want uh, rent seeking, um, which has grown tremendously over the last couple of years. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. It's nice to be re, uh, reminded that consumer finance exists in a much broader uh, spectrum. Uh, we have a, a few minutes for questions. Uh, we have a couple interns floating around the room with microphones, so I'll remind you uh, to wait till the microphone gets to you. Please identify yourself, affiliation, uh, and try to actually have a question. So uh, we'll start right here. So, uh, Stuart Pratt, um, so going back to the uh, CFPB, um, one of the arguments made about the reasons for the CFPB and the way it's structured today uh, is it, it, it's based on this theory of behavioral economics and the fact that uh, while some of the arguments made by some of the panelists had more to do with a buyer beware view of how markets operate, how consumers make choices, that in today's uh, market, consumers are not necessarily making good choices, they get less than full information, the choices are sufficiently imperfect, that you need a, syst a very systematic and perhaps even very granular approach to regulation to ensure the products are understood well, the decisions are better made, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know if any of you want to respond to this, this sort of competing theme of behavioral economics and how it drives at least some of the philosophies behind an agency. I think Todd agency. has a whole, new, whole chapter <laughs> in his new book on the topic. So uh, Thanks for that plug, Mark. To, uh, uh, coming after. Yeah, and I've also had uh, four articles come out in the past six months on behavioral economics. Uh, so, uh, so maybe I'm well suited to do it. And um, <clears throat> the bottom line is behavioral economics is not ready for trials on human subjects uh, yet. Um, uh, it um, is, uh, has some results on laboratory experiments, but, um, but it's, it's laughable, the idea to try to, at this point, generalize it to actual um, uh, policy um, for, for a variety of reasons I talk about in these articles. One is it's completely, uh, it, there, there, there aren't really very good testable hypotheses. Let me give you a, a great example that I've written on is overdraft protection. So there's, so they made it more, diff so uh, they, uh, the regulators were concerned that people were overusing overdraft protection. <clears throat> Some people were overusing overdraft protection at banks. So they changed the rules and made it opt-in rather than opt-out to overdraft protection. And what they found was that those people who use overdraft protection the most were the ones who are most likely to opt-in to uh, overdraft protections after the rule. Now, the behavioral economists say, oh my goodness, this is how bad this is. These people are so irrational that we tried to help them and they wouldn't take the bait. Obviously, we've got to just prohibit them from using overdraft protection, right? So, uh, um, so basically, they started off with a nudge. The nudge didn't do what they thought it would do. And they concluded that we've actually got to shove them, right? Uh, we've got to make mandates. Now, there's another story. Let's call it the correct story. Uh, the correct story is grounded in standard economics, which finds that the reason people use overdraft protection is because they have limited credit options. And overdraft protection is the best option that they have at the time. Their alternative is payday lending. People rationally choose between overdraft protection, payday lending, and bouncing checks. So you would expect that people use the overdraft protection the most are those who have the most demand and inelastic demand for overdraft protection. So they'd be the ones who would be most likely to opt into it. Right now, the point here is, is standard economics has a testable hypothesis that says you can do this and, and we have an explanation for this. 
There is no way to rebut the behavioral economics hypothesis. They've got a story. They wave their hands around and they, I mean, how would you, how would you uh, conclude this? Now, that's just one example of how behavioral economics just isn't a behavioral law in economics is that it gets applied to policy isn't really a very serious uh, um, subject at this point because it can make it say whatever they want to. I'll just give a second example, which goes back to the point of the panel, which is to the extent that we base our policies on the belief that people are irrational or stupid, we are creating incentives for people to be rational. And what we know is people do, in fact, respond to incentives. So if you base your policies on the idea that people are stupid when, in fact, they're not, number one, and number two, people learn, you're creating exactly the kind of moral hazard problems that we have here. So that was, for instance, one of the reasons why we got in the foreclosure mess, which is policy believed that people were irrationally attached to their homes, essentially. They believed that people wouldn't walk away from their homes simply because it was $100,000 underwater. That turned out to be a terrible uh, assumption, right? Because what we found is when the incentives were strong enough, people responded rationally. And I think that's a good warning about uh, uh, the idea of basing policy on the idea of people being irrational, which is what we know over time is that basing policies on the idea that people do respond to incentives. In fact, people do respond to incentives first. And secondly, it's more robust uh, to the kind of moral hazard problems that, uh, that that we're talking about. I could go on a lot more with the flaws of behavioral economics. But you'll but have the, to read the book. Yeah, but you have to read the book, and you can find some articles online that I've got about this. Roger, so. if you want to add anything or not. Just, or uh, just uh, maybe a couple things. One, just in passing, I've always been struck that, you know, bankers always say overdraft is expensive, but hey, at least it's cheaper than payday. And all the payday guys say, hey, payday is expensive, but at least it's cheaper than overdraft. And somebody's got to be wrong about this. On the, uh, the question of like what people call behavioral economics broadly, and I'm not an economist, you know, I'm perhaps a little, just a little bit more pragmatic about it, I think. For me, uh, a discipline that allows you to have a grounded point of view on what should be the most effective regulatory intervention if there is to be one is good. So taking the example of overdraft, um, uh, there are a lot of, I know that there's a lot of argument about, you know, it is disclosure, really disclosure around uh, overdraft uh, uh, incidents and amounts would solve, you know, kind of everything if we could just figure out exactly the right way to disclose it. The reality is, like, I don't know, I've seen people sign up for checking accounts. You find me the dude who walks into a bank branch and says, you know what? I'm planning on bouncing a lot of checks. What is the best product for me? Like, that's not real life. And to the extent that policy can be grounded in, I don't know, real life decisions that people make in the market, to me, that feels like a good thing. Can I just say one sentence? The answer is payday lending is sometimes more expensive. Overdraft uh, protection is sometimes uh, more expensive. And in fact, consumers choose rationally given uh, the, the situation between them. It has to do with the number of checks, the size of the checks, and that sort of thing. So. Uh, we have a move to another question. If there, I see any hands anywhere. Oh, in, uh, far in the back. Uh, since you brought up payday lending, I thought I would ask a question about that. Um, I believe that one of the next proposed rules coming out of the CFPB will deal with uh, payday lending. And uh, Professor Zawicki, I was very interested in your comments about uh, the CFPB not paying attention to Dodd-Frank when it came to auto lenders. And one thing uh, that is specific in Dodd-Frank is that the CFPB cannot regulate the rate on uh, short-term loans. Um, so I just wanted to get your input on what direction 
you think the CFPB may go in uh, terms of regulating uh, short-term loans in the future? Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, that's right. And, um, you know, they can, they can do a lot of things to essentially destroy payday lending without, um, uh, without uh, putting rate caps. And that's just setting aside Operation Choke Point types of, uh, types of pressures. Uh, here's the reality of payday lending. People, uh, people, use payday, people use payday lending are basically people who don't have better credit options. They don't have credit cards. They would max out their credit cards if they used it. They're basically deciding between payday lending and um, overdraft protection because the alternative is things like, uh, like, like pawn shops. Um, first. Secondly, unfortunately, as a result of the regulatory onslaught after, um, after, uh, uh, after the financial crisis, we are driving more and more people out of the mainstream financial system. And I think this is a national tragedy. Uh, the, the Credit Card Act um, dramatically reduced uh, access to credit cards for, uh, for low-income uh, consumers. The Durbin Amendment has been one of the most uh, pernicious and uh, reckless and destructive uh, laws we've ever seen. Um, we've seen probably a million people lose bank accounts um, uh, uh, a large number because of the Durbin Amendment, which pays price controls on uh, on um, on uh, uh, debit card fees. So we're systematically driving people out of the mainstream financial system, and the result has been that payday lending and pawn shops have experienced double-digit growth uh, in the past few years. Now, unfortunately, the, the Washington's the only world in which they see increased demand for a product as something that means that the product must be bad, uh, as opposed to something that consumers are, in fact, turning to as a, as a life raft. And my concern is, is that they're going to essentially wipe out payday lending. Uh, they can do it through all kinds of things, avoiding rate caps by limiting rollovers, doing these, uh, these sorts of things. And, and we see how this ends. We talked about how why we, how, why we don't design regulatory agencies the way we design the CFPP. We've also seen how it ends when we, uh, um, uh, when we bring in this kind of heavy-handed uh, regulatory process. In 1968, the good old days of consumer credit, according to a Senate report in 1968, the second largest revenue source of the mafia was loan sharking. Illegal gambling was the only larger revenue source, except loan sharking was more profitable, so they invested their gambling revenues in loan sharking. In 1973, Fat Tony Salerno was arrested for loan sharking in New York City. He was running $80 million a day just in his turf of loan sharking in New York City. That's $463 million just in, uh, in, in today's dollars in, in loan sharking. We've taken away bank accounts. We've taken away credit cards. If they take away payday loans, if they take away auto title loans, if they take away overdraft, we see how this ends. We're pushing people more and more off the end of the scale, and I think that's a national tragedy. Raj, I know you've left. It's been a while since you've been out of CFPB, so I don't know if there are any insights you can share from your time there how you think they're going to approach payday or not. Well, I mean, um, I think the regulators broadly, and I think you see the themes of this in the FDIC and OCC guidance on deposit advance uh, in the banking system, are concerned mostly by sort of the repeat use phenomenon, sort of the, the notion. And I think, you know, the payday industry at some level kind of has created some of this themselves by always talking about it. Well, it's an emergency, you know? It's an emergency, and someone needs cash in an emergency. They're willing to pay. Here's the thing. Like, in reality, yeah, it's, maybe it's an emergency, but it's kind of an emergency that happens like three or four times a year for most people. So I don't know what you call an emergency. To me, that feels like a legitimate credit need that, frankly, this is a very expensive and inefficient way to provide. I mean, as a credit card person, right? Like, I always looked at the payday business and thought, like, how do you charge so much and make so little? Like, it's actually not that great of a business. Uh, and I think that advances in decision... Uh, decision ability, broader data sets, and 
and I'm one of them, so I'm talking my book a little bit, people who are newly enthusiastic about a post-card act subprime credit card business is going to eat the lunch of some of these less efficient products. Uh, that's my hope, anyway. Well, certainly more competition is what the consumer finance market needs, needs across the spectrum. Uh, any more? Oh, well, yeah, sure. Uh, one comment on the on the accountability of the uh, CFPB. Uh, Chairman Hensling said it was the least accountable uh, institution in the history of the United States yesterday. Uh, and it's funded by the Fed. When I went to work for the Fed, the central bank, in, in 1974, I went up to the gym and asked, what's behind that door? And they said, oh, don't ask that. You can't open that door. That's where the ping pong balls are. And I said, what are you talking about? Well, Wright Chapman, and it was chairman of the committee in the 1950s, was trying to put the Fed on budget so there was some accountability for what they did in budget hearings. And of course, the Fed's response to that was lock up the ping pong balls. So um, the founder of the CFPB knew what they were doing, putting it under the Fed where there's no budget and they have unlimited printing press to fund its activities. Tim, I think we've got uh, time for one more question if there are any more. Uh, oh, right, uh, middle in the back. Thank you. So you've all talked about how, how payday ends, for example, and I couldn't help but think Elizabeth Warren has made a lot of noise about the post office getting involved <laughs> in banking. So this probably sounds like an absurd proposition to a lot of people here, but what would be some of the implications of that? Like what would our, our country look like if the post office got involved in banking and started doing its own payday loans? Somehow I suspect we'd have another bailout. But <laughs> yeah, that, that's the funny thing is that they think that this would actually be profitable for the post office. They can't deliver the mail profitably, uh, which is their business. Why would they think they could do this profitably, right? The way these guys compete, payday lenders, that's why they compete on convenience and speed. And whatever somebody says about the post office, that doesn't seem to be their strong uh, point. Uh, but the point is a larger one, right, which is we do have a growing problem of, uh, of, uh, of a lack of financial inclusion for people. The problem is, is, is what causing the problem are these regulations. What's causing the problem of the Durban Amendment, the Credit Card Act, the costs that we've heard about of Dodd-Frank and, and, uh, and everything else. Uh, unintended consequences of enforcement laws. So for instance, they brought a fair lending claim against Nixon State Bank, you may have heard about this, uh, where they were charging Hispanics like half a percentage point more or something in disparate impact. So they just said, all right, for now and everybody gets 18%, right? Um, you know, they've done all these things to stifle competition, to stifle the incentives to engage in financial inclusion. I think the real answer is think about how to create a system where incentives and competition drive people to, uh, uh, to this. So for instance, during the rise of the debit card era prior to uh, the Durban Amendment, and by the way, I've got a new paper out just a couple weeks ago on the impact of the Durban Amendment, if anybody wants to read more about this. But free checking was 76% of bank accounts three years ago. Today, free checking is 38% of bank accounts, primarily because of the Durban Amendment, partly because of overdraft protection limitations and that sort of thing. That is a good way of destroying people's uh, opening ladder and, uh, onto the financial system. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to have post office banking, which is absurd. The second thing we're likely to see, if you want to hear a prediction, is that once we've denied the incentives to serve uh, low-income consumers, the banks or the, the regulators are going to come in essentially with CRA on steroids and basically order banks to start banking people at a loss to make small loans at a loss. And what we'll get is just more and more of this ratchet that we're seeing, which is entanglement of politics, 
uh, uh, in the political system with banking, which we're already hearing, as Kevin said, which we see an operation choke point, which is, you know, uh, having them under their thumb, uh, which we see uh, in the way they're doing mortgage lending and everything else. And it's just more and more of tightening this ratchet between the banks and the political uh, aspects of, of the banks. And I think that's where we're headed. I don't know if we'll get something as stupid as post office banking. I think what we'll likely get is basically mandates or require banks to bank people at a loss uh, now that they've taken away the incentives to bank them at a gain. Which is uh, probably one of the reasons why the, the government seems to be comfortable with the banks themselves being so highly leveraged. Uh, you know, we'll let you make loans at a loss, and you don't have to put any of your money, own money in, and if it goes bad, we'll bail you out. Well, that sounds like too bad of a deal for the banks, not necessarily a great deal for the taxpayer. Um, before I wrap up, I want to give if any of the panelists want to take a, a minute of privilege to add anything to the end. Look, I, I am like very excited. I mean, granted, I've either spent or wasted my entire career in this sector, depending on your point of view. Uh, and so maybe I have to feel this way as sort of a chronically optimistic person. Like, I feel like this is a very good moment in time for this sector. Uh, and, you know, because some of the answers, uh, I think it, when you kind of step back and try to be practical about it, some of, some of the answers to, for example, this question about the post office, like, I mean, in my opinion, I think the arithmetic only admits of one answer, and that's the U.S. financial sector has too much physical distribution, not, not, not enough. And so, like, I just don't get how it works. Uh, but on the other hand, just think about, like, what else solves that business today? Like, you can walk into a Walmart and essentially buy checking account functionality off a J-hook for $5, like, that's kind of remarkable. There are people working on figuring out how to settle payments in 10 minutes instead of three days as through the ACH system. Like, these are gigantic breakthroughs that realistically make giant uh, differences in the lives of consumers and small businesses in particular. And to me, that's a great plus. Um, so it's more important to get in mind. I certainly see a lot of the innovative tech side maybe happening outside of the, the formal commercial banking system, whether it's you know, Bitcoin, PayPal, or whatever is, is just sort of running around. I mean, it, it's certainly it's, true that we're involved in eight or nine innovative companies and none are banks. So I will point that out. I think a lot of the consumer growth and consumer finance might just well be out of banking now. Um, just a, a quick point on what the future holds. Uh, I've worked in a lot of third world countries with the World Bank, and of course they were always trying to promote um, consumer finance, um, and they've never had a success story, um, mostly because... Um, uh, Consumer finance is a very populist political concern. And the more populist the concern, the less banks can get into it because political risk is the greatest risk in um, dealing with consumers. And uh, so my forecast would be that it won't be that many years where the CFPB will have more people working for it than we'll have in the private industry actually working, <laughs> literally um, working on consumer finance because it's not, a, it's not a very good business right now. Yeah, I'll just say the, the big thing is um, thinking about pro-innovation and pro-inclusion policies. Um, things like mobile banking, I mean, not to sound like a broken record, but the biggest obstacle right now to mobile banking is the Durban Amendment, uh, which turns uh, things basically into price-controlled debit cards if they offer full functionality by large banks. We've got to clear out things like uh, like that that infringe on innovation. We've got to, And we've got to deal with this Dodd-Frank thing. I mean, the the the, the cost of Dodd-Frank, uh, it's promoting consolidation in every industry. Uh, it's erecting barriers to, to, to entry uh, in, in industries. And we've got to, somebody's got to come up with, and they've just got to articulate, a pro-innovation, pro-competition, pro-inclusion, uh, uh, and the deregulatory strategy for f uh, financial institutions, which is truly market-based and not this kind of crony capitalism that uh, Kevin was describing. 
Thank you. Before we before we break, a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, we will be having lunch upstairs on the second floor. So when you exit out of here, go up the stairs. Um, it will be a buffet lunch, and you will have about 15 minutes or so uh, to have lunch and sit down before Congressman McHenry gets started. So we'll make sure that everybody gets a chance of that, and he'll start around uh, 1.20. So uh, I welcome you, thank our panel, and uh, welcome you to upstairs for lunch.